Yay! It's Dr. Stu's podcast again with me, your host, Dr. Stuart Fishbein. We're back for podcast number 129. I'm here with my protege, as always, Bliss Young. Welcome, Bliss. Thanks. Good to Long see Long time you. no see. I know. Yeah, we've been getting a lot of mail saying, when's the next podcast coming you out? Have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I've been doing a lot of traveling. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the timing for us has often been difficult sometimes between getting our schedules coordinated. Yes, I know. I know. I'm a busy lady. You are. You're getting much, much busier. And you, and you're always like, can we do it tomorrow? Or I'm like, no. <laughs> no, no, no. And then you will say, well, let's do it next Wednesday. And then something comes up and I can't do it next Wednesday. Yeah, so yeah. that happens. So here we are uh, doing you. podcast number 129, uh, where you apologize for those of us, those of you, excuse us, that... Uh, that look forward to these things, which there are, apparently there are a lot of you out there, which is, makes me very, very happy Yay. that people are actually listening. <laughs> I know, right? We're not just talking to ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> so I was thinking, I just came from the chiropractor today, and he, gave, he gives out a handout every time I go to him. So today's handout talked about truth. It said, speak the truth, give whatever you can, and never be angry. Hmm. So he always, put, and then he tells me that I should eat more blueberries. <laughs> <laughs> what what does he think the blueberries will uh, do? They got good vitamins and antioxidants mm, in them. That's it, just... Not a lot of calories. Not having to do with your shoulders. Nothing to do with anything. <laughs> yes, just, just giving healthy Advice? suggestions uh-huh. from my chiropractor. And I hope that people listen to our podcast and they get some healthy suggestions about how to deal with life in general and pregnancy in particular. I love that. I have, so oh, a ahead. rainbow a day. That's my advice. We've talked about this and you said, you mean Skittles? <laughs> <laughs> Did I say that? Yeah. So that getting a variety of color in your diet from fruits and vegetables. Oh, your you diet. Because I was saying we live yeah. in Southern California. We don't see a lot of rainbows. Yeah. No. A rainbow a day in terms of nutrition. If you do that, it's very helpful in terms of getting nice. diversifying your vitamins nice. and minerals. I did see some thunderstorms though recently. I was uh, <laughs> back in Minnesota and I was back in, I went to a wedding in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Had a really nice time there. We're going to catch up on some of the travels. But before we do that, I forgot to do the... Uh, rest of the introduction. <laughs> so <laughs> since we're out of music now, I will say uh, you can find us on iTunes and you can find us on drstewspodcast.com or you can click on the link on uh, uh, birthinginstincts.com and you can find Bliss at? Birthingbliss.com. Right. And you can email Bliss or me at askdrstu, that's askdrstu at gmail.com. And also for those of you who enjoy Instagram, uh, Dr. Stu's not on Instagram yet, but I am <laughs> at Birthing Bliss, B-L-Y-S-S. And um, today I'll go and post some photographs of what it looks like when we're doing our podcast. You know, I went, I was home last weekend for a family event and and I was honored to be able to lead a, cer- a little ceremony in the naming of my two great nieces. So Aww, that's lovely. Uh, one of the couple that had one of the nieces was the couple that I was honored to be the officiant at their wedding. Mm. And I realized that as I go home and spend more time with my sister, that my sister and I are becoming more and more like my mom and dad. Yes. It's kind of scary <laughs> when oh that happens, God. right? Oh my God. It's so scary. Just mm-hmm. the, our mannerisms and, and uh, you know, how we, we can't keep up with the technology. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, we, were, we went to the uh, Mall of the America to pick up my daughter. I've been there. Uh, um, and she says, well, we're at Forever 21. Right, and it's like the Mall of America. If anybody's ever been there, it's this ridiculously <laughs> huge mall. And we're driving around. There's parking lots on all those different sides of it. And she says, "I'll send you a pin." Mm-hmm. Okay, she sends us a pin, and the pin is inside the mall. Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, how is that going to help us? <laughs> and so she got. So it just got to the point where my sister and I were hopelessly lost trying to figure out how to use the um, 
Google pin that she sent us <laughs> to find her. And so my daughter's losing patience with me, which is not an uncommon thing anyway, but it's pretty, it's pretty normal. Uh, but I just realized that, that, that sitting there and, re- you know, reading or hanging around the house, just, it's just a, it's a real different vibe. And I go home and it's a, it's a time warp for me. Yeah. Because I stay at my sister's house and I don't really have any work to do and, you know, the family's around and everybody's getting older and then there's a new generation coming in and then another new generation behind them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and now rather than being the little kids that used to ask the four questions at Passover, I'm like the uh, one of the patriarchs of the families. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. It is sort of interesting. It's great that you can go back to that. Yeah. And then I was at a wedding, um, in Georgia at one of the, uh, wonderful midwife students I got to meet in Hawaii. You went to her wedding? I went to, I was invited to her wedding. Yeah. How they came cool out and stayed. That? They came out and stayed. You know, you met them. Uh-huh. They came out and stayed with me for a couple of weeks out here and followed me along. Unfortunately, we didn't have a single birth while they were here, but, uh, I think they learned a lot and then, um, they got married. Uh, she got married a couple of weeks later hmm. and, uh, I was honored to go in, in, to the Georgia and wearing a suit when it was 90 degrees and <laughs> 95% humidity. <laughs> well, it was quite hot here in LA. Oh, too. I missed that day. I missed, the, I missed those really hot days, yeah, it was really hot. but it was hot everywhere in the country, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you done warning. any traveling this summer? <laughs> N- I went to Ojai. That was nice. And uh, I, I, you know, we had those horrible fires last year in one of my favorite places in Ojai um, called Meditation Mount. Yeah. Is closed because... Got they, burned out? Mm, they got burned pretty bad, but it sounds like they're going to be able to rebuild like 60% of the plants up there were saved. And um, our friends, Nadia and Mickey... They lost their house. Yeah, I drove up and went to the spot where their house was. Oh where my we, gosh. Where we um, were present for the delivery of their second son and... Very yeah, emotional. it's been one of the only two cord uh, cords burning ceremonies I've ever been at. <laughs> yes. Yeah I, I, yeah, I don't need to go to another one either. <laughs> but. <laughs> um, but I am going to India in November, and um, and I may possibly be able to go be invited into some of the the villages there and meet some of the indigenous midwives in India. It's part of my plan. So I'll talk about that when I come back. Um, And then next month I haven't taken any clients for August on purpose. Um, So I'm going to take the month off and I'll be doing some traveling, probably just mostly in California, but maybe go to Mexico for fun. Yeah, that'll be great. Yeah. That'll be great. That's what summers are for, sort of. Yeah, my yeah. son went to Mexico, my 15-year-old, so I guess it's my turn. Uh, so I rounded out my summer traveling with my annual um, five five days in Las Vegas uh, oh, for yeah. the poker did you tournament. Do well? I did not play in a single World Series event this year because there were none that were uh, that f- that were my um, my game at the amount of money that I would want to pay to enter one. They were all too high priced for me, so I played in bunch of smaller tournaments at the Venetian and the Golden Nugget and I did I did fairly well in one of them all I didn't cash in any of them this year so it was rather disappointing mm. but I got to spend time with essentially my my best friend growing up and uh, who recently lost his mother and uh, so we hung out and you know every night we we said well hopefully we won't be meeting for dinner because one of us will still be playing and then every night we met for dinner so <laughs> <laughs> it didn't work out so good uh, and then the biggest trip of all of course was um, me going to Portugal Mm-hmm. Uh, at the end of May, so actually you can see how long it's been since we've done a podcast because that was uh, the last couple of weeks of May going into early June. Uh, and I went uh, and I wanted to thank Sarah um, Duval and Laura Ramos and Nuno for being really great hosts. 
and showing me around. And we had wonderful people there. And Portugal is a wonderful country. It was never really on my bucket list. And now it's totally on my bucket list because even though I was there, I didn't get to see any much of it because mm-hmm. I was teaching all the time. Mm-hmm. But my daughter came with me. And so she got to go to see Lisbon and Sintra and Porto and all those places while I was teaching in Lisbon and up in Porto. And I did four half-day seminars on breach with Sophie and her mom. How many attendees? About 15 to each one of those. Nice. A, that's, I try to max it out at 15. Otherwise, you can't get enough um, hands-on thing in, in a three-and-a-half-hour And, a half hour and are these time. midwives or OBs? Or Most of them nurses? were midwives. There were some residents that came mm-hmm. to a couple of them. Mm-hmm. And I think that they left uh, a little bit more informed. Mm-hmm. Had some good questions from them. I don't know that they, they will ever do a breach delivery uh, purposely, but if they had or had to do one emergently, I think that they'd have a much better insight to do it. And I even let them put Piper forceps on. Uh, we worked with those as well. And then one of the days in Lisbon was a lecture day where there were about 240 people in the auditorium, and they I gave a talk on informed consent, as we see it in America, and they had translators there. Most of the people in Portugal spoke English, so... Uh, when somebody spoke Portuguese, I had to wear a little headset to listen and get the translation from the guys who worked tirelessly up in the booth up there to, to uh, for for a whole day giving out translations. But uh, and then we had four uh, panel discussions, and I was the only person that was on all four of them, and it was for VBAC and breach and twins and over forty two weeks. Mm-hmm. And they had a local physician usually, and a local midwife, and then they had a mom who'd had one of those things tell their story. And each panel discussion lasted an hour or probably a little bit more than an hour. Um, and it was a wonderful period of time. It was just wonderful. It was a wonderful venue. And the people there, again, I, uh, Sarah and Laura, were so hospitable to us. And my, my daughter had such a great time there. Um, and then we took off from, uh, we went up to Porto and did the same thing up in Porto. Took the train up there and went port tasting, which was fun. Port tasting in Porto. Uh, Well, that's where it comes from. (laughs) (laughs) That's why it's called port, I think. Uh, Port, all port comes from Portugal. That's why I think it's I was going to say, why isn't it called Porto then? Well, it's from Portugal, (laughs) but most of the, Porto is the port country, I guess, Ah, where all the vineyards and stuff are. Interesting. And then I tried my first espresso. I never had espresso before. What? Yeah, you know me. I don't drink coffee. But you've never had one? Uh, no, I had never What'd had an think? espresso. I thought it was uh, uh, a little bit too much money for one sip of a... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Did they put the like lemon twist and everything? No, oh, no. okay. Uh, they do it whatever, however they do it in mm-hmm. Portugal. <laughs> mm-hmm. Portugal espresso. I'm glad that and then you, you had this. It. We had these little desserts called uh, pasteis, um, which are famous in Portugal. They're, mm-hmm. little, they're little custard pies. Mm-hmm. They were good. And I don't even like dessert, but they, they were good. Mm-hmm. And then we had the misfortune, unfortunately, of uh, my... Fr- my new good friend Nuno told us we had to try something called Francesinas, which are these sandwiches with like ham and eggs and grease and ham and eggs and <laughs> toast and stuff. Uh-huh. And we went to this restaurant <laughs> and, <laughs> and I, we're like, you know, this is not for us. But no. but the rest, of everything about Portugal except the Francesinas were, were wonderful. It's good to try that stuff though, the local food. I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, and then we, my daughter and I went off for eight days to Morocco. Yeah, amazing. It is amazing. Morocco's a very amazing country. I mean, I, you, you do get sort of tired. You've seen one souk or market. You've seen them all. Mm-hmm. Uh, they all have the same stuff. If you've ever been in any, any country, whether it's India or Indonesia or 
Jerusalem or any Mexico. place, they, all these markets, they, you know, they all sell the same sort of, I don't want to call it junk, but some of it's crafty stuff and some of it's junk. Mm-hmm. Um, Touristy. And it gets, it gets tired. But, but I did, it was funny because I didn't realize that, that Morocco has a lot of storks in it. And I was, I don't know if somebody, you saw the post I put on Facebook, but, you know, I was walking in the market in Marrakesh and on the top of a building is a, is a big nest and standing in there was a stork with a baby stork. And I just thought it was so appropriate that as an obstetrician, I'm walking around Marrakesh. And Did you find out why? No, is that's it? where they migrate from. They migrate from Europe and back and forth between Europe and, mm. and Northern Africa, apparently. Oh, it was a real stork. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> real. <laughs> they're everywhere. Real storks ah, everywhere. Very yeah, cool. Yeah, they're big birds. I mm-hmm. mean, if you've ever seen one live, they're, they're really big birds. Uh, it's your spirit animal. But Morocco is a really interesting country because um, I always thought of Morocco like from the movie Casablanca. And it's desert and it's dry and, you know, it's very Arab and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. You know what? It's a very diverse country. There are areas in Morocco that are in the higher mountains that look like Switzerland. Hmm. They're green and it rains and there's a lot of water. And you would never know that by how, you know, my background was based on it's all desert. And the, of course, the highlight of our trip was actually going to the dunes in southern Morocco near the Algerian border where we rode camels and we and we did uh four four wheelers uh in the desert and that was just a hoot and it was a really good quality time with my daughter you know as much as (laughs) as much as a father and daughter can spend that much time together in the same room constantly for eight days it's like well it's all right because the the hotel rooms especially in portugal were quite small you're like okay that was fun typical (laughs) european yeah it was really nice but it was nice to spend time with my daughter yeah right so, but either way, I wanted to mention as a sort of segue because I was teaching breach in Portugal, and I got a nice message just recently from a good uh, friend of the podcast uh, down in San Diego, Nicole Morales, who um, told me that uh, she's one of my teachers too. You know? Yeah, she yeah. was one of your teachers mm-hmm. at Nizoni mm-hmm. uh, at your school. Mm-hmm. She's, she's very, very good she's at what amazing. she does, mm-hmm. and um, we have done a couple breaches together now. She and I, and we did one recently where uh, we had a woman sitting on a birth stool. And I let her, you know, I mean, the, the, she baby, the baby came out all the way to the, the head. We really didn't need to do much. And then I had her, t- I t- helped her with what's called Frank's nudge, which is a little thing where you push on the, on the uh, uh, shoulders to mm-hmm. push the baby back. So the head flexes and the baby's mm-hmm. head comes out. Mm-hmm. And she just recently had a surprise breach. And she wrote me a really nice note saying that, that at no time was she nervous because hmm. she was able to do the maneuver she had to do love sets maneuver mm-hmm. which is the turning of the baby back and forth to get the arms out and then mm-hmm. she did frank's nudge and the and the woman was on all fours and uh and she had a nice breech birth and she felt confident because she had been um able to do some breaches uh with you someone who knew what they were doing <laughs> right awesome so that's a big thing and that again uh, having uh, that's why I think the people in Portugal, even if they never do a plan to do a breach and the midwives in Hawaii that I did, I think I spoke to that at a previous podcast where I went to Hawaii and taught mm-hmm. that. Um, and we're going to be teaching some more courses uh, as the year progresses in the East. I think we have one in Virginia and possibly one in uh, Alabama, uh, coming up toward the end of the year that, um, that even if you don't plan on doing it every now and then you're, everyone's going to encounter a breach and, and knowing what to do is really key mm-hmm. and staying calm. And um, you're enjoying it, sounds like, these these classes. Because, you know, at one point we were raising money for Sophie. So you're enjoying it, teaching. Are you asking me? 
Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. I thought it was a statement. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not there, so I'm assuming you're yeah, enjoying it. Yeah, I am. The, the course, having too many in one day is hard. So I, I've decided now I'm going to change it to have only um, like one half-day session of hands-on per day. Mm-hmm. I, I was doing two a day in Portugal, mm-hmm. and that was really too much. Mm-hmm. So um, plus it was hot. Yeah. Good. Well, and, you're and learning sweaty. what works about right. it. So I think in future podcasts, we should have like the specific ways that people can find out about the classes in case they're listening in their area, then they know, like, you know. Well, on uh, Renee, who is my ass- assistant who does most of my postings and things like that, generally puts these things on my calendar section in okay. my birthing instinct, uh, birthinginstincts.com okay. webpage. Right. We don't really have anything firmed up yet. No dates yet. No, no okay. dates yet. So I have a question for you. Because I've been thinking about this, and uh, there's a lot that spins around in my head sometimes. And I'm just wondering, (laughs) now that you are in private practice Mm -hmm. by yourself, Mm -hmm. how do you like being self-employed? Oh, I love it. Tell me why. Why do I like being self-employed? As opposed to like a colleague of yours who might work for a large group, or a CNM who works for Kaiser, or anything else. What is it? Because we are dying. There, there's we're a dying breed as far as the, especially an OBGYN. I'm not dying, by the way. No. I may sound a little sick right now, but <laughs> no, I don't mean that. But but uh, yes, I know. What you're saying. Yeah, you're a very vibrant person. You're not dying. But <laughs> yes, the private right. practice of medicine is mm-hmm. disappearing, and and in midwifery, I think it still thrives to some degree. And I just want to spend a little time talking mm. about the 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 feelings that you have of of being self-employed. I know what mine are and mm-hmm. people on the podcast who've probably heard me talk about it, mm-hmm. you know, but I want to hear from you. Well, I'm not very manageable, by the way. <laughs> I mean, I worked in corporate, the corporate world for a long time before I, um, before I started delving into birth and owning my own birth center. So I saw the struggles that the women that worked for me, even though I'm a pretty cool and flexible boss, but just, you know, you make less money, obviously, um, you don't have the autonomy of working your own schedule. Um, you, you have to be more accountable and reliable to other individuals and their desires and personalities. I do that with my clients and that's understandable, but with uh, working with other people, um, you know, you have to, you have to sacrifice particular things that might be important to you. And if that's worth it to you to have, um, that, support and somebody to bounce things off of and having time off and some women some midwives and women do feel that way but for me I I think especially after my experience of working with the sanctuary and having to be accountable to so many people um, I really am enjoying the ability to be like I don't want to work on Wednesdays or I don't start working until 11 o'clock in the Isn't morning or yeah. I mean, I love that. Yeah. It, is, it is great. And you know, I have a lot of friends who are, who, you know, who work nine to, you know, do the nine to five thing. Mm-hmm. And like I, I'm off on Wednesdays and I'm off on Fridays. And if we're not doing home visits, I usually, you know, we'll go the horses or do something or just do nothing. As a mm-hmm. matter of fact, the, mm-hmm. the pleasures of doing nothing are, are, are quite, are quite, quite understated. Um, but, but, there, you know, the problem is that there's no one else that's available to do stuff with you because <laughs> everybody else is working nine to five. Yeah, yeah. Right. 
well, a lot of my friends are more artistic or, you know, are in this world. So I don't find that issue so much. But the thing that I've noticed for me here in L.A. is that I only really want to be on the road because I do all home visits. I don't have an office, which I really like. I like being in their home and on their terms. Well, and it also saves you quite a probably a significant amount of overhead, too. Probably, yeah. But um, but the problem is because of traffic, I can only I'm only really willing to be out and doing appointments between like 11 and 2, <laughs> 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 which means I can only get a couple in a day, which means I don't really have a lot of days off. So I have a lot of time off, yeah, but, but you I don't, don't have don't, a lot of days You don't days have to off. get up and rush in the morning. No. You have leisurely mornings. I know what that's like. I don't start my office usually till 9.30 or 10. Mm-hmm. None of this, uh, you know, you know, when I used to work in the hospital, you have to make rounds at 6.30 so you could be in surgery at 7.30 and be in the office by 9 and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I don't miss that either. I, I totally get what you're saying. Yeah. And if I, you know, my, my clients are really flexible, the ones that aren't are usually not my clients and you know if I'm like today I had to push an appointment back so that we could do the podcast this morning and I said hey is your schedule flexible can I just let you know when I'm done and she's like yeah sure I'm running errands just tell me you know and so I don't have that stress too of like always having to be somewhere at a particular particular time um what's it, it like not having a boss well, I haven't had a boss in a very long time, but as a student, I felt like I had a couple of bosses. Um, but yeah, I I absolutely love being able to make my own decisions and have that autonomy. And and I have this philosophy in life is that you know we're here to kind of give our gifts and we all have a very unique gift to give. It's like our own voice. And I find that when you work for other people, you don't have that ability to really find truly what your voice is and what your gift is and to be able to give that to the to, to, to the people that you're giving your gift. I so agree. F- and the bigger the institution, the, the, the more suffocated you probably would be. Yeah. And At I least- don't know that that leads to joy in your work. Well, and it doesn't. And it leads to some sort of, you know, it leads to the categorizing and the, and the, um, and the one size fits all and the protocol thing that, you know, you have to do things a certain way because how else can you run a large company? And it takes away yeah. your individualized individualization of, of care and the fact that you as Bliss have qualities that that in a large corporation would often probably be stifled. You I mean, even in my organization, even with all of the beautiful ideas that I had about the sanctuary, the sanctuary? you know, it, it um, the bigger you get, the more you have to kind of dilute what your your vision is in order to accommodate all of the different personalities that you have working with you you know it's collaboration and so that's a good thing i like collaboration it's not like i can't collaborate but um it does dilute things i think to a certain degree yeah i just wanted to get the get your feelings about that because i i i I love it too (laughs) and you know people ask me how i ever got to the point where i'm doing what i'm doing and a lot of people have heard the story before about how the hospitals and I had a falling out in 2010 and, and it just was uh, inevitable that that wasn't going to work out. And so I ended up doing what I'm doing now. And, and other than being on call 24 seven, um, There's downsides. It, it is, it is by far uh, the best years of my practice and things that I've been enjoying most. Yay. And it gives me time to do things like the podcast and do things like the teaching and do things like the writing. I've submitted two papers recently. Well, one was last year. It's finally got uh, the one that's on the 60 home breach deliveries compared to 109 home head down singleton deliveries. Mm-hmm. And 
it's now gotten through the first peer review process. Okay. So finally, <clears throat> it took them nine months to find somebody who would actually peer review it. And the peer reviewer is a guy from Arizona who um, did a really, really good job. It's a thankless job and, and because peer reviewers don't get paid. Yeah. And they take it very seriously, and it's, it takes a, quite a bit of time. And he was extremely thorough. And then Rick Safries and I did a lot of, you know, we made a few changes at his suggestions. We 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 argued some of the reasons why we weren't going to change things, and and then we resubmitted it. And so we'll see what happens with that. But it is the slowest process. Like uh, that's why part of the reason I can't work in that environment. I can't handle the the slowness, the way things get done. And then the other article was. Recently, I had a set of twins, which we'll talk about some twins now because it's a good segue. <laughs> but I had a set of twins where uh, the first one was breech and the second one was head down. And we knew that the baby's second head was a little bit oval shaped. We call it dolicocephaly. And uh, it was a little bit lower in the pelvis than baby A's head, which was a little bit higher and on the mother's left side. But I always thought that the baby's head would slip by the other baby's head. We've heard about interlocking heads. Yeah, I think we talked about this one. Did we already talk about this mm-hmm. on the podcast? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I want to just reiterate <laughs> that I've now submitted a paper on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's I submitted it to the main, main journal in the United States. That one I think I can get published in the most prestigious journal in the United States. So it's called the Green Journal. It's, it's the Journal of the American College of OBGYN. And I'm you know, at the review stage with that one too. But to talk about the maneuver that you did? Yes. Did you, did you name it after yourself? No. <laughs> not that I, can, I can't I cannot do that if it gets published then people can start calling it that that would be fine I'll, I'll start it I'll okay. have a, I'll start a hashtag and you know it's a maneuver that almost no one will ever use because mm-hmm. no one's ever going to do that but speaking of which by the way there was a study that came out and it was pointed out to me by one of our listeners uh, who goes by the initials M-A-S um, her, uh, her last name is shown I don't know what her M-A stands for mm-hmm. but anyway she sent me a link to an article that talked about the delivery of the second twin if the first twin is head down. And a lot of p- people will do C-sections if the second twin is breacher or transverse. And this was a study that showed that there was actually no difference in perinatal outcome. Between C-section and, and vaginal. vaginal delivery if the mm-hmm. first twin is head down. Mm-hmm. And I think that that just reiterates what we've been saying for a very, very long time. Um, other, other twin stories to speak of. Okay, yes. we have two. Yes. Uh, two, two clients recently. Both of them ended up have being what we call transfers of care, not transports. They never went into labor. They were transferred of care. One of them was a woman who was uh, pregnant with twins at, a, at an advanced maternal age mm-hmm. uh, and went to all the way to 41 weeks and two days. Can we just say that advanced maternal age for us, when we say that, is actually like over 40? Well, not, this, this, not... One, this one was actually over 50. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So there, so, so there you go. We like yeah. we mean really like you know. Yeah, I didn't want to mm-hmm. say, but yeah, she was. No, but I mean, I get that. Mom. I get that all the time from women. They're like, "I'm on 39. Is it okay to have a home birth?" I'm like, "Oh my god, please, yeah. can we talk about this?" Oh, we've talked yeah. about that on Aussie yeah. as far as advanced maternal age yeah. goes, because yeah, that's it's it's funny. I mean, it's even called geriatric pregnancy in some <laughs> in some um, in textbooks. And Poor stuff. ladies, you guys um, are good. Anyway, so she got to 41 weeks and two days, and her uterus. You know, being that it was an older uterus and it was really over distended and the kids were both close to seven and a half pounds mm-hmm. and she was showing no signs of labor, I just felt that at that point that she either needed to go in for an induction or she needed to g- just get delivered. Mm-hmm. Because even I, at 41 and two sevenths weeks with twins, was getting uncomfortable. Tell me we're, what makes you uncomfortable. What are, what are the things that you're concerned well, about we're only, at that point? We're essentially hoping she'll go into labor before something goes wrong. 
Mm-hmm. And you get to a point where these, I mean, look at, I mean, every baby is extremely valuable, but this is a 50 some year old woman who had IVF uh, twins. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're, you're now playing, you're getting to a point where even if anything were to go wrong at this point, it's really would be hard for me to justify why we didn't at least discuss this issue with her. Well, sure. The so. statistics go up for stillbirth and you had a conversation about informed consent and right. she chose to go. And we had a good alternative because we had Dr. Chavira to Yay. go to. And uh, they had their long conversation and she decided that she wasn't up for an induction mm-hmm. because she didn't really want the discomfort and she doesn't like, she didn't want an epidural, she doesn't want medicine. So uh-huh. she just thought, oh, you know what, I'm just going to have a C-section and she did mm-hmm. and the babies were great and she recovered beautifully and they're thriving and doing great and it's a lovely story because she's a woman that everybody in, in the LA birth community knows who she is mm-hmm. and, um, uh, you know, not every person who comes to me has to deliver vaginally. I mean, that and, you know, people think that that they come to Dr. Stu and they're going to get a vaginal birth and, you know, I am going to follow my gut and I'm going to follow common sense and guidelines uh, when I give informed consent. And, and if she had said, no, I want to wait longer, I would have waited longer. Mm-hmm. But inside my, you know, I would never have shown it, but inside my gut, I would have been nervous a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, right. there are things that moms choose to do that make us a little bit nervous. Right. You know? So that's a good... We're human. And the second one was a, a, a set of twins. The woman had a large fibroid, which hadn't changed the entire pregnancy. And she got to 39 and a half weeks, I think, 39 and five, I think. And she came in and um, I think we decided to do testing on the babies because 30, almost 40 weeks with twins is like being about 41 or 42 weeks with a singleton. It's, it's a little bit overdue mm-hmm. and wanted to check the twins. And on baby B, we were just doing a non-stress test on baby B. Oh, no, we weren't. We were just doing a scan for size and growth. And I and I, I visualized an, uh, a deceleration. Hmm. Uh, that's why it wasn't even for testing. She came in for routine, and we were just going to check the babies for their position and their growth. And I was looking at the heartbeat of baby B, and it went drop down into the uh, high 80s, low 90s, for about 30 seconds, mm-hmm. and then it came right back up again. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I decided I better put them on the monitor. So we did in the office, and over a period of 30 minutes, she had two more. D cells. D cells mm-hmm. with good recovery and otherwise what was called a reactive non-stress test. But here we are with a woman who's got an unfavorable cervix, very high up, who's now got a baby with a 39.5 with twins, who's got uh, D cells on one of the babies. So And I, you live far from her. Yeah, she lived down in Orange County. Yeah. And uh, so I decided that uh, the best thing for her to do is to at least go get monitored and see what's going on. And so I sent her again to my favorite OB in LA, Dr. Chavira, and he... <laughs> Uh, monitored her and she had another D cell on the monitor and they had a long discussion and again she agreed that a C-section was the best choice and it turned out that baby B not that it would have necessarily caused a problem but baby DB had a true knot in the cord um, and that may very well have been the cause of it and had the baby been laboring it might have gotten tighter and the variables deeper and then she would have had to have a C-section rather urgently mm-hmm. um, so these things turn out sort of the way they're supposed to turn out right right and we, you know, that's what we have a backup plan and and good referrals for is in the situation that it's not in the normal range. You know, that's that's what we do. And I think when people are finding out about home birth and stuff, they are often. <laughs> it's still I'm still surprised at some of the things that people don't know about what we do, like that we have a backup plan. I had a client, a repeat client. They were um they were a doula client the first time. 
And this time I said, are you going to have a home birth? And they're like, oh, I don't know about it. So I had lunch with them yesterday. And the dad, you know, was like, well, I'm a little nervous about this and that. You know, he's talking about the first experience that they had had in the hospital. And and uh, <clears throat> and so I try, I started to explain about transports and the percentage of transports and all of that. And he's like, okay, so we have a plan. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> We're not going to just be like Googling how to resuscitate a baby. Like, you know, we understand all of this stuff and we're trained and we obviously have a backup plan. But it just always surprises me that people just think that we just, I don't know what they think we do. We just come and hold their hand or change. It's over rare. Them it's or? rare. There are, there are some families that, that, <laughs> that are home birth, totally, everyone in the family is home birth friendly. Mm-hmm. But most of our clients and probably most of yours too have someone in the family. Or some place, or some friend, or something that's really a doubting Thomas, and that mm-hmm. that is repeating stuff that they've heard over and over and over again from the you know the um, the medical community about about home birth, the knee jerk sort of you're crazy to do that, you, you know you're you're out of your mind. What if always the what if this happens mm-hmm. or what if that happens? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talked at the last podcast about you know we had a client once who had a baby with Down syndrome. And, you know, the immediate response of any maternal fetal medicine specialist is that that baby needs to deliver in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, except my friend, my, I'm, I have one MFM who is very supportive of what we do. And she, my question would be like always, well, those babies generally don't need immediate attention. So why can't she have the birth that she wants? Right. But see, every medical problem people think of needs to have needs to be in the hospital and that that's not the case right yeah yeah especially with you know the training and skills that we have so and if we had more supportive environment we, then we we probably have significantly better outcomes one of the you mean transport su- yeah yeah just 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 even even people being ethically honest about informed consent and saying mm-hmm. listen i wouldn't do a home birth but there's enough data in the literature to say that properly selected home birth was a skilled practitioner is reasonable to do Therefore, you know, go and f- investigate these things and then come back and let's talk about it. That would be a really nice thing to do. I think that all obst- obstetricians should have to go to a home birth so that they really understand. That's not going to happen. I know, but I'm just saying. In my world, in Bliss's world, all OBs would go to a home birth as part of their training. This this particular client, um, she's like, I really do love my doctor. You know, we have a great relationship. And I said, well, you should just tell her it's really not personal. You just really want to be at home, and she's welcome to come. <laughs> and she started laughing. I'm like, seriously, she yeah. can come. She's like, she's not going to come. I'm no. Like, yeah, but you should invite her. <laughs> you should invite her. That, that's, yeah. that's actually a brilliant idea, yeah. that you should invite them. They'll say no, and they'll, often well, they'll quote their my malpractice care won't let me but you're not coming as a physician you're coming as a neighbor yeah you can just hang out they don't know that they can do that nor do they really want to because it's inconvenient for them yeah probably yeah (laughs) it was it was like one time we were going to have a doctor come to a a breech birth down in orange county and and he said uh well i'll come as long as she's delivered by one (laughs) (laughs) it's like no no it doesn't it doesn't work that way Uh, speaking speaking of sort of um hospital issues and stuff like that we've talked many times about how Hospitals will, or the, the ACOG will, will send out an edict uh, that is something that, that midwives have been doing forever, and they think that it's really a good idea. And there's a new one out now in the, in the, the throwaway journal called OBGYN News uh, from a couple from a month ago. Um, I'll let you read the headline, and then and then you can then you can um, we'll, we'll comment about it. Here's the headline: Upright Mobile Labor. No-cost intervention could save $785 million in the United States per year. Okay. 
Well, if money's involved, then maybe right. we'll let her move around. But I'm just saying the whole idea was that, <laughs> that and by the way, this was presented at ACOG as a, a part of their poster presentations mm-hmm. by a medical student from Oregon Health Sciences Center, not by a physician, okay. but by a medical student who, who looked at the, you know, looked at the numbers and basically looked at it from a you know cost benefit ratio, not from a common sense ratio. Because uh, obviously that's what motivates people. Right. So but smart. It, but it's 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 almost like across <laughs> the entire top of the page mm-hmm. where it says upright mobile labor in mm-hmm. huge letters mm-hmm. as if this is innovative. Right. I know. <laughs> Don't get me started. Well, that's the whole point is to get you started. <laughs> Our listeners want you to get started, so get started. Um, well, that 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 ties into what I was going to talk about. Can I talk about that? Yeah, yeah. We got we got all the time in the world. So actually, not <laughs> actually not because <laughs> no, I talk too much. No, no. We'll do this your topic, and then we have um, podcast number one thirty coming up shortly. So. But in the UK, I think it was in two thousand seventeen. They did a study, and at the top of this article, I think it came from Mothering Magazine, because I couldn't, had a hard time finding the actual study. Um, But what if we stop telling women to push when they're in labor? And we talked about that on a a podcast ago. Um, And this new program at, at this hospital has decided to do this, and they have reduced their, um, severe tearing, so third and fourth degree tears from seven to 1%. They had 22 third and fourth degree tears in one month. And that's when they decided that something was going on and they needed to really look into how they were managing this and what might make a difference. So this study had um, over 14,000 women and they, um, (laughs) midwives were also discouraged from pulling a baby out once their shoulders emerged instead of supporting the baby's weight as it emerges. So, I truly believe that 95% of the time women can deliver without us interfering. And this doesn't just mean an epidural, pitocin, episiotomy, these grand um, ways of intervening, but coaching, changing her position, um, interfering with uh, our fear. Like there's lots of these subtle ways that we, we kind of – change the dynamic of this woman following her instincts. And um, I love that they really did this trial at the hospital and found out that there are less tears when we don't do directed pushing, when we actually let a woman follow her own instincts. Brilliant. Yeah. It's brilliant. And I, let me give you an, a, 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 an example of that where um, I, did a, I did a delivery recently with a doula and, and midwife Beth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a student, Tessa, and it was a VBAC mm-hmm. at home. Mm-hmm. In her first birth, she got to about somewhere between 7 and 10 centimeters, but never got beyond that, and was transported to the hospital. She had tried it at home, and the doctor there you know, didn't really do anything, let her push for a couple hours, but she really didn't push effectively, and then she had a C-section, and she was so afraid that this was going to happen again yeah. with this pregnancy, and... Mm-hmm. She went into labor just before her due date, and um, I finally, at one point, she was making a lot of grunting sounds, and I wanted to check her to be sure that her cervix was out of the way, Mm -hmm. and she was seven centimeters with a very, very edematous cervix, Mm. okay? And that's not a good sign, as you know, Yes. all right? Mm -hmm. So what we did is we got her in the tub, and I went to the bedroom and- Put on your headphones? Put on my headphones, exactly, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. went to sleep, Mm -hmm. and- uh, actually, for, for a while, I went in. The, they had a very small house. I went out to my car, actually, 
initially and slept in my car. It was one of those really hot days, so I had the car running and the air mm-hmm. conditioning on. Um, and they had a really small house with no air conditioning, so or they had air conditioning in one room only. Mm. But um, she sat in that tub with support from the midwife and the doula uh, for three and a half hours. Did she Was she still grunting? She was still making very mm-hmm. loud noises. Mm-hmm. She was a very loud, laboring mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, at one point, Beth says, why don't you just put your finger in and see what you feel? And she mm-hmm. put her finger in. I feel something really hard right here. Mm-hmm. And the baby was complete, complete, and plus three, mm-hmm. plus four. Mm-hmm. And she had just labored down without anybody mm-hmm. reducing her cervix. This is the first time I think I can recall where her cervix was that swollen and we left her alone rather than, you know, sometimes when it gets that swollen, you try to sort of stretch it or push it out of the way or mm-hmm. reduce it. We just let it, let her labor in, in the water for three and a half hours and she pushed for seven minutes. Yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Right. Exactly. Yeah, she did have a small first degree tear. but Of her perineum, yeah. not any cervical issues at all. No, no, yeah. no. Just just a standard little yeah. little tear. But that's what we get concerned about, right? I mean, and that happened to me with a doula client in the hospital recently. And, you know, they're, the thing that they said was, we want to make sure that she's not going to tear her cervix. And I'm like, how often does this really happen where a woman has the urge to push and her cervix is you know, on its way to moving out of the way. We're not talking about a woman who's like firm and closed, you know, pushing. Um, how often do they actually? Doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't happen. All right. So, It's you probably know. more likely to happen from the fingers being pushed in there yeah. trying to push the cervix out of the way. Yeah. And right. I had a woman similar to that. I mean, she pushed longer than seven minutes, but who had that urge to push for many hours, many, many hours. Um, and, you know, we just supported her and eventually she dilated. You yep. know? Yeah. And, you know, and then I got an email this morning from a woman who's pregnant with her second baby. And after her first baby, she ended up, she was, she had, uh, well, I'll tell you in a minute, but she ended up pushing for six hours. Mm-hmm. And then she had a problem with her uterus afterwards, which required her to be transported to the hospital. And now she's pregnant again. And she's wondering if that's likely to happen again. Mm-hmm. But the, the thing is, she was actively pushing for six hours. Mm-hmm. What if she wasn't, what if she hadn't? Yeah. So I'm not saying that sometimes it doesn't help to obviously use your fingers and push and and actively push. And that's not what you're saying either. But you're saying that maybe we don't need to be doing it all the time. And in hospitals, especially when someone's complete, now they're letting them labor down. I mean, the term labor down is happening more often. I hear it more often from even my own colleagues. Mm -hmm. When we go out to dinner Mm -hmm. with my doctor Mm -hmm. colleagues who Mm -hmm. work in the hospital, they talk about letting people labor down. Mm -hmm. Or one of my colleagues does a a lot of legal review. And he tells me, you know, when he's telling me a story about a case or something like that, uh, not revealing any, you know, HIPAA information, but mm-hmm. just giving me the, the, the crux of the, of the case, he talks about how, you know, some people let them labor down. And, and so I think it's becoming more and more common. But this is a great example of how I think when you let p- nature do its thing, mm-hmm. if the baby is fine and the mother is fine, there is absolutely no reason to intervene because nature will do its thing and do it right most of the time. Right. And then you need to be ready if it's not. Exactly. And, you know, I think in the hospital they are so used to having women on medication, epidurals, that of course they're going to need 
support in understanding how to push and when to push because you're completely detached from that experience. I've had an epidural and pushed a baby, so I know that. Um, but when you have a woman who's not on an epidural and is instinctively pushing, you know, to interfere with that process, to come in and say, get on your back, put your feet in these stirrups and push this way, when the woman is already doing a great job. I mean, this doula client, she was already bulging. So like, why does she need... You know, it's a totally different thing. So some women may need a little bit of direction. Some women have been, may have been pushing for a really long time and are starting to get tired and frustrated. And you stepping in and saying, would you like me to offer some things that might make it go a little bit quicker? Rather than, this, these are the subtle things that we do to disempower women well, too. Well, some of it's not even that subtle. Some of it happens because the nurse checks the patient. She's completely dilated. So mm -hmm. then the nurse at the hospital calls the doctor, says, doctor, your patient is completely dilated. So the doctor says, okay, I'll be right over. And the doctor comes over and the woman isn't really ready to push. And so the doctor's a little right. annoyed with the nurse for calling him because the epidural hasn't worn off yet. And so, you know, he's annoyed and he wants to get home or get back to work or whatever else. So he starts putting his fingers in there and, and trying to have her push when she can't really feel anything. And, 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 and look, at, I, I, I do understand it. Mm -hmm. It's not the best model of care. Um, it's why, you know, patience is, is golden. And in our system of obstetrics today, which we're going to talk a little bit more about in podcast 130, I'm going to talk about, you know, sort of protocols and common sense and, and uh, categorizing things and giving, you know, labeling, lumping things together into one group. When we start to do that, we start to forget uh, that, you know, patience and time are as valuable as anything else. And unfortunately, Absolutely. and unfortunately most physicians and the model by which they practice patience and time really is low down on the totem pole. Yes, and it's affecting long-term health for these women, you know, in terms of pelvic floor and all and all of the things that we talk about with pelvic floor, higher intervention rates, mm -hmm. higher C-section rates right. leads to, you know, downstream problems uh, with future pregnancies, putting them, making them high risk now because they've had a forceps delivery or they've had a C-section with their last baby or whatever else. And so now they're carrying that burden around in their mind and that sort of causes everything to cascade into uh, the whole, you know, bad mammalian birth model, which we've talked about a thousand times, how mammals don't do well when they're, they're anxious or worried or, or bothered. And, right. you know, that's the model by which most women are cared for in the United States and, and most of the Western countries. Right. Well, there's the music. What does that mean? It's time for us to move on. It is. <laughs> so this has been, uh, we, we appreciate you all listening. Sorry it took so long. Yeah, good we are. We do apologize for that. We will, uh, we will be back in about uh, 10 minutes. No. <laughs> With podcast 130. But this has been podcast 129. Uh, for Bliss Young, uh, I'm Stuart Fishbein. Uh, thank you for listening.